Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Drugs, Addiction, and Recovery, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Emily Dufton, the host of this channel, and today we'll be talking to Thomas Hager about his new book, Ten Drugs, How Plants, Powders, and Pills Have Shaped the History of Medicine, which was released earlier this year by Abrams Press. Hager is a science writer, journalist, and associate professor of journalism and communication at the University of Oregon. Ten Drugs is his newest book, Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you, Emily. Happy to be here. Awesome. So before we discuss 10 drugs, I was wondering if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself. What got you interested in studying drugs? Sure. Um, I write a lot of books about science and uh, I'm fascinated with science history. And the main reason that I am and the reason that I did this book on uh, the development of of the drug industry was because I'm always amazed by the huge impact that science and technology has on our daily lives, everybody's daily life. And most people Mm. don't really understand how that happened or how important it is. We take a lot of things for granted. I think in our society, we're so technologically advanced and, and we take our healthcare for granted to a great extent. We take the uh, technological wonders that we use every day for granted, you know, the electrical system and and the food production system that we have. Well, I like to go a step back and look at, at the history of how all those things happen. Uh, because for me, it helps wake me up to, A, sort of how blessed we are in a lot of ways with technology now. I know there's a, a strong anti-technological movement uh, in the world and uh, tied to environmentalism. And I'm, I'm really understand and appreciate that too. At the same time, I think it's important for us to know uh, kind of the roots of our uh, lives that we lead, the, the wonders that surround us, the things that we have uh, can take advantage of. Previous generations could have only dreamed about Health and medicine and the development of drugs and pharmaceuticals is one of those arenas that really illustrates how far we've come as a society in a really short time. So I chose to do the drug book to tell some stories, uh, some interesting, I think, historical stories about how we got here to this world where we're surrounded by pharmaceuticals, where our lives, especially in the United States, are intertwined with all of these drugs. We take so many drugs in the United States. We outstrip everyone in the world. I wanted to explore a little bit about how that happened and what it's doing to us. I love that. I love the idea of of understanding the history of things that we take for granted and assume that they've just been here all the time. So I think you're doing really important work with that. And to build a little bit about on what you just said about how many drugs we take, uh, before we get into the nitty gritty of the drugs you write about, uh, you open 10 drugs with a trip to the British Museum, where you were particularly interested in an exhibit there. 
Um, could you describe what you saw and tell listeners how you were inspired to write 10 Drugs? Yes, certainly. I was in Europe. Um, I was doing research for another project, and I had a day off in London. So I went down to the British Museum, you know, being kind of a history uh, geek. I went down to the British Museum <laughs> to see what was going on. And to my surprise, uh, when I walked in, uh, in the first floor of the, of the museum, there was this huge exhibit uh, that was striking. I, it was not really art. It wasn't really history as I understood it. It was, a, it was an enormous table about 40 feet long covered with pills. And it was a, uh, an installation by a team. One was a, a physician and uh, another was an artist. And they were trying to demonstrate in a very effective way, I thought, uh, trying to demonstrate how many doses of pharmaceuticals an average person in Great Britain took during their lifetime. What they were doing was bringing attention to the fact that we, we as a species are taking a lot of drugs. They did it for the British uh, uh, public. So they had about uh, 14,000 doses of drugs laid out on this table in, in a very artistic way, woven into fabric and with explanatory photographs and text and so forth. But it was striking the enormous size of, of the drug load that the average British person took. So that got me interested in thinking, well, if that's true in Great Britain, what's the case here in the United States? And I began mm -hmm. to go down the road of exploring uh, the the ways in which we got to where we are with taking drugs. And I will tell you just briefly that people in the United States take a lot more drugs than people in Great Britain do. In Great Britain, the number was relatively small. The United States, as I think I mentioned, you know, people in the United States are just drug happy. We take so many prescription drugs, so many supplements, so many vitamins. Uh, it's incredible. So. Right. The numbers really are staggering, right? You, you write that if the average American takes two pills a day for what the average lifespan, which is about 78 plus years of life, there's over 50,000 pills in the average American lifetime. We're, we're dwarfing our British neighbors, dwarfing them. Um, you also write that we spend more than $34 billion a year on over-the-counter drugs and $270 billion on prescription drugs. I mean, Americans are less than 5% of the world's population, but you write that we put in over 50% of the money into the drug companies' coffers. Now, the illicit drug market, of course, is even bigger, but are these staggering numbers of prescription and over-the-counter drugs why you chose to focus specifically on legal, non-recreational pharmaceutical drugs? That was part of the reason. Um, I think that there's a lot of media attention, to, and especially in movies and novels as well as the news, a lot of media attention is given to illegal drugs and the illegal drug market. And uh, every few years, there's a new scare about a recreational illegal drug. And uh, so mm. a lot of attention is paid to that. I think less attention... Uh, in my view, serious attention, less serious attention is paid to the uh, legitimate pharmaceutical industry, which in its own way has moved just as fast and is just as important and, and affects our society perhaps even more than illegal drugs do. So I could only do so much hmm. within the covers of a single book, and I chose to limit, <laughs> uh, to limit my investigation to uh, 
sort of legal pharmaceuticals, that is, uh, pharmaceuticals that are available by prescription, uh, and to talk about their effect on our health and our society. That way, I could do a deeper job with uh, that class of drug. And I think that plenty of other people are paying attention to illegal drugs. <laughs> That's true. I, I've interviewed a couple of them on on this uh, podcast channel already. Um, now, 10 Drugs seems to focus a lot on evolution, uh, certainly of the drugs you write about, but also of the drug industry itself, from the prehistoric discovery of medicinal plants to the rise of big pharma to drug developments you predict for the future. But drugs have also influenced our own evolution as humans. How have the drugs that you write about impacted American and global life, and perhaps even more specifically, our life spans? Well, that's one measurement. Uh, there, there are any number of ways that you can look at the effects of pharmaceuticals on our society. And lifespan is certainly uh, a straightforward one. Um, my uh, estimate, of in uh, actually it's based on a number of scientific studies, um, is that uh, over the past uh, several decades, let's say 50 years, uh, the development of pharmaceuticals, along with other advances in medicine, have increased our lifespan of, on average by about two months every year. And that's, that's you know, we hear uh, often about how our lifespans are increasing. I, just the introduction of antibiotics alone, you know, penicillin and streptomycin and all of those, most of that happened in the 1940s, 1950s. And just the introduction of those drugs lengthened our average lifespans uh, by more than a decade. Wow. And that's one way of looking at it. I really, I really like the way of looking at average lifespan increase since the advent of antibiotics, since World War II, say, and um, looking at it in terms of how much they've added every year uh, of, our, of that time period. And the idea that our lives every year are increasing by two months, our average lifespan, is incredible to me. Much of that is due to pharmaceuticals. So, yeah, they have an effect on the graying of America, you know, the, the aging of our population, because they're allowing us to live, on average, far longer than anyone in history, any society in history. Uh, that graying is one great effect. You know, drugs have other effects as well that I think are just as important. One thing that I explore in the book is the uh, impact of the pill, uh, the introduction of the contraceptive pill for women in the 1960s and how that altered the options available to women for education and for family planning and really helped usher in um, a lot of social change in addition to its simple ability to allow women to control uh, whether or not they had a baby as a result of intercourse. So there's a lot of social uh, impacts that happen that go across not only our basic health and our lifespan, but also enter into how we live our lives and the options and opportunities we have available. Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's remarkable, the effects of taking a pill, right? And, and, and how they can change things. I loved how you put it in the introduction. You say that drugs moved us from fearing the diseases of childhood to suffering the diseases of old age. I think that's just a remarkable advancement um, that, that pharmaceutical, pharmaceuticals have given us. 
but you also mention that much of the history of drugs is the result of, as you put it, error, accidents, and lucky breaks. So what role has sheer serendipity played in the development of the drugs you focus on? It's striking uh, to me, having done the research for this book, you're right to emphasize that because it is remarkable how often uh, these drugs that have tremendous impacts and, and uh, tremendous health effects are stumbled across completely by accident. And the, we often like to think that our, our big pharmaceutical companies, you know, with their gleaming laboratories and their highly trained specialists are doing all of this rational scientific work. And that's how these discoveries happen, because they're rational and they're careful and they're following leads um, that make sense uh, in some kind of scientific way. The real history of drugs is just shot through with all of these accidents hmm. uh, and people looking for one thing and being lucky enough to notice something completely different. One of my favorite stories about this is actually not in the book, but I will share it with your listeners now. <laughs> uh, I didn't have I didn't have space to put this one in the book, but the guy who uh, there was a researcher right after World War II was looking at antibiotics. Antibiotics were huge because penicillin was introduced in the last years of World War II. It was a life-saving drug, saved the lives of so many soldiers uh, with infections and so many people who were affected by disease, uh, thanks to the devastation of Europe and Asia uh, because of the war. So penicillin spurred this huge uh, gold rush for new antibiotics. One thing that had to be done was that because antibiotics are biological molecules, they tend to spoil. They, you know, they go bad, uh, just like you know the fruit in your refrigerator will go bad if you leave it too long. If you leave penicillin in a bottle too long, it goes bad hmm. too. So this guy in England was trying to figure out how he could preserve penicillin, keep it active, but keep, make it so that it won't spoil. And he was developing all of these additives that he could toss into uh, penicillin that would keep it from spoiling. He was going down that road and he was testing these uh, compounds that he was looking at. He would test them on rats mm. to see if they caused health problems. A standard part of drug testing is you test, you know, if you have a drug you think might be useful, you put it into a rat to make sure it's not going to kill the rat because you don't want the health of those side effects. So he's, he's doing rat tests on these drugs and he notices that this one thing that he gave a group of rats really seemed to make them relax. They had, he had a cage full of very relaxed rats. <laughs> and it was just by luck. It was just by luck that he even noticed it. But most of the uh, rats were healthy. They were all healthy. But they just seemed to be enjoying life. And he noticed this. And so he, he took this compound, which he was going to use to preserve penicillin, and he started giving it to other animals and then to humans. It turned out, to be the world's first, what we now call minor tranquilizer. It was the first, the first drug that could be given to a human being that would just ease everyday tension. Wow. Uh, and we now have, of course, we now have Valium and Xanax and all of these and other tranquilizers that came out of this research. This guy put his drug on the market. It was the first one out. Nobody knew if anybody was even buy it because there'd never been a tranquilizer before. 
put it on the market. It had the name of Milltown at the time. And it's hard to find anymore because it's outdated. But at the time, it was a huge hit. It really, uh, people in the 1950s called it a martini and a pill. And um, <laughs> they would have it. They would. It was especially popular in Hollywood for overstressed executives and Hollywood stars. People were making jokes about it on the Academy Awards. Everybody was popping these pills, and then it, you know, went on to to stronger uh, tranquilizers. But that's an example of how you go down the road of looking for one thing, and you're in this very rational search process, and then something completely unexpected happens. Now, if you're a very good drug researcher, you keep your eyes open for that. You know, you're Mm -hmm. watching for unexpected side effects. If you're a bad drug researcher, you let it slide and you go, well, that has nothing to do with what I'm doing. The unexpected accident, the serendipity is the word that you use, this sort of informed luck that happens, uh, is all over the history of drugs. It's really extremely lucky that we've got good researchers who can recognize the accidents when they happen. Right, who pay attention to to some very subdued rats in a cage. That's that's remarkable. Um, and I'm sorry that story didn't make it into the book, but I'm glad we got to hear it uh, <laughs> here, on, here on the podcast. That's great. Um, so real quick, though, something you had mentioned a couple of moments ago, and, and you talk about this at the end of your introduction as well, is the siege cycle, uh, named after Max Siege, the German researcher who first described it uh, early in the last century. What is that? And wh- how do we see it recurring over and over in, in your book? Yeah, I, I, uh, that, was, that was one of my favorite uh, facts that I found out while I was researching the book was this overall view of what happens every time a new drug is introduced. Um, and it's, and it goes beyond drugs too. Uh, there was this German, uh, researcher who named, uh, is a siege or Saiga Max, Max, uh, siege or Saiga who gave it his name. So the siege cycle or Saiga cycle is way is what, uh, he saw as a common pattern for the introduction, not just the introduction of drugs, but really the introduction of many new products in the 20th century. And it works this way. Okay. Uh, with drugs, you see this all the time. If you, if you are watching the introduction of a new drug, you will see this happen. Here's, here's the way it goes. Uh, a drug company comes up with a with a hot new drug. It's going to cure something or other. It's going to ease something or other important. And they, with great fanfare, they announce the new drug. This is step one of the cycle. Uh, they announce the new drug. They put out all of the positive information about it. Everybody gets very excited. And this uh, honeymoon phase for the new drug, this is stage one of the, of the siege cycle, uh, is, is marked by tremendous sales, enormous adoption. Everybody thinks this is the greatest drug that's ever been seen. It's going to change everything in this field of medicine, whatever it is. And everybody starts taking it. Then negative reports start coming in about Mm. side effects. And you come to step two of the the cycle, of the siege cycle. And And in the second phase, more and more news reports come in about 
people saying, well, it's not as great as we thought. There are these side effects, potentially dangerous side effects that can happen. And suddenly, yesterday's star drug is today's pariah. It's mm. it's the, uh, the worst thing that has ever happened. The side effects are horrible. And um, you really have to be careful with, uh, with taking this drug. And everybody sours on it. Everybody suddenly decides that it's dangerous. Mm. It's, it's uh, not worth taking. That's stage two. Finally, the last stage uh, is one of sort of consolidation of all of this information. Most drugs have wonderful positive effects. Most drugs, well, all drugs also have negative side effects. You don't get a drug without side effects. Mm -hmm. A drug without side effects does not exist. So there's always two sides to it, the, the good side and the bad side. Finally, in, in stage three of this cycle, the, the two are balanced. And people come to a better understanding about what the drug can really do and what its dangers really are. And the drug falls into sort of a moderate use. It takes its, its normal place within the the world of other drugs that are out there for things. And it starts being prescribed rationally mm. instead of exuberantly. So at, at stage three, you hope that everything balances out. But then the next new drug comes along and stage one starts again and everybody's enthusiastic and we have the best <laughs> drug that's ever been developed. And the whole cycle starts again. If you go back in the history of medicine, you see this happen over and over and over. And drug makers know it. You know, drug manufacturers know that this happens. And so and they plan accordingly. They they make sure that stage one shoots as high as possible in terms of sales and that they can control step two of the cycle. And, you know, it's it's part of the business. Uh, but you but watch you next time a new wonder drug uh, hits the market. Just watch this cycle happen. It'll it'll go through in a, in a period of about five, maybe five to 10 years. It'll go through all those three stages. Wow, I look forward to kind of marking on my calendar when I see a debut of a new drug and watching watching this unfold. Yes. And perhaps I'll have another interview, follow up, and say, "Okay, well, I watched the series cycle about this. You know, let's discuss. That'll be great." Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so readers know uh, from your title how many drugs you're going to focus on in your book. Of course, it is called Ten Drugs. Uh, what drugs did you choose to write about, and how did you choose them? There are certainly more than ten drugs in the world. Yes, indeed there are. There are thousands of drugs. Uh, and again, we're talking about legal pharmaceuticals. Uh, thousands and thousands of drugs. It's an enormous industry, as you said, you know, uh, $270 billion industry in terms of prescription drugs and alone. And um, it was difficult, you know, when you're a, a writer and you're approaching a subject as huge as that, you have to make decisions. You can't put everything in a book. There just isn't room. You have to pick and choose what you're going to focus on. My mm -hmm. decision model for you know deciding which way to go uh, with this uh, was to choose things on the basis of their importance to the history of drug development. That's one factor that's I wanted to tell anecdotes about the entire history of drugs from the first drug you know, back in uh, Paleolithic times, which was probably opium, uh, at least as far as the evidence that we have, opium was certainly one of the first drugs that humans tried. 
all the way back 10,000 years ago to today. It was a huge span of time, an enormous number of players. I wanted to get some important ones, but I didn't want that to be the only thing because the stories of many important drugs have already been told. Aspirin, for instance, is not in my book, although it's a hugely important drug. There have been other books about aspirin, so I chose not to do that. I picked mm-hmm. historical value plus entertainment value. I'm a storyteller. <laughs> I'm a storyteller. I am. Uh, my background is in journalism. I have had medical training, but I'm not a physician. And uh, so while I understand the science, I'm more interested in explaining it to people who are not specialists. I really want my readers to be people who don't know a ton about science, but are willing to learn a little bit about it. So I try to make my books as entertaining as they can be, as well as, you know, stringently accurate as far as I can. So the uh, combination of historical importance, entertainment value led me down some strange paths. I have some (laughs) drugs that are absolute necessities. I, you know, if you want to understand the history of pharmaceuticals, you really do have to understand opium and opium derivatives. And I spend uh, a good amount of time on opium because it's fascinating drug. It's so important right now. And it really does say a lot about how we have learned to manipulate natural substances to create more and more powerful drugs. Uh, You know, today's synthetic opioids are just murderous. They're so powerful. Fentanyl et al. Um, And all of those really demonstrate how... uh, science has evolved in terms of drug development. So you had to have opium. I really wanted to have an antibiotic because they're so Mm -hmm. important, but I didn't do penicillin because there have been other books. I did sulfa drugs and sulfa drugs preceded penicillin were in many ways more important, helped spur the development of penicillin, but it's a lesser known story and it's an interesting story. So I picked those. And then I I took some oddballs uh, like chloral hydrate. I do a chapter on chloral hydrate, which is we know as knockout drops and knockout drops don't seem like a very important drug, but in the history of science, they really were important because they were the first totally synthetic laboratory made chemical that could be used as a pharmaceutical. And that marked an important step for people in science. Many people thought you could never have a drug except uh, if nature made it. You know, most drugs came Mm. from plants. Most drugs came from plants, in in rare cases, minerals or animals. But uh, most most drugs were natural for most of human history. It was only in the late 19th century that people decided that you could make a drug that worked in the laboratory. Chloral hydrate was the first, and so on. So I would pick and choose um, based on a combination of their importance to science and their and they're having interesting stories that could be told to people uh, about the development. You know, drugs don't come from eggheads in laboratories alone. Drugs Mm. come from a combination of uh, social needs, political needs, medical needs, um, personal ambition, uh, uh, a personal thirst for knowledge. They come from altruism. They come from greed. They come from all kinds of people in all kinds of times. I wanted to display some of the range uh, of those stories. So I was, yeah. I, I came up with 10, sort of 10, more or less kind of 10 uh, drugs that I thought worked and, and allowed me to tell the larger story. And then 
I tried to just keep people interested in reading more about them. And that means telling human stories, tell human stories that people can understand about, um, you know, not heavy duty science so much as just the driving factors that pushed these researchers uh, that allowed them to commit so much time and energy to this pursuit. It's nowadays we have big, you know, people talk about big pharma. They, um, you know, people have demonized the pharmaceutical industry as uh, being profit hungry to the exclusion of all else. And it is absolutely true that modern pharmaceutical industry has evolved into a money making machine and, and it does, it, you know, greed plays its role. But the history of uh, drugs, as I explain in this book, is also has some of the most wonderful selfless people involved in mm. it as well. It's a mix. Absolutely. I, I think your focus on telling human stories and the driven people who inspired so much of the drug development is such a, a fascinating approach. And in my own work, I really appreciate showing the individuals behind changes in drug policy or in changes in science and all of that. And one of the earlier stories that really jumped out to me when you're talking about selfless people developing drugs for benevolent reasons is the history behind the development of um, inoculation and vaccines. And it jumped out to me because it's a family story uh, about a mother wanting to protect her child. And it seems so the opposite of the anti-vaccination crowd today. So could you share <laughs> the history of, <laughs> of inoculation and vaccines with us very briefly? Because it's just such a compelling chapter. Sure. Thank you very much. And uh, I, I really enjoyed uh, working on that chapter. This is about the early development of inoculation as a way to prevent infectious disease. This is what turned into the, uh, the vaccines that we have today. But, but way back in the 18th century, in the 1720s, it was almost unknown in Europe. And um, everybody... Uh, I wanted to tell the story about uh, inoculation and vaccination, but I didn't want to focus on the guy who became kind of the poster boy uh, for the early development of vaccines. Most people know the name Edward Jenner. Edward Jenner developed the uh, cowpox vaccine uh, for smallpox. And we, I certainly learned his story in school. But what I found out quickly when I got into this uh, was that there was a woman who preceded Edward Jenner, um, who really was just as important, in my view, just as important as Jenner was in, the, in terms of introducing this fantastically effective medical tool to, uh, to the world, uh, to the Western world, at least, uh, in Europe. Her name was Lady Mary Montague, and Lady Mary became a personal hero of mine the more I learned <laughs> about her. She was a delightful... Uh, historical companion, you know, you, you, when you're researching history, you tend to get so involved with the lives of your subjects that they become almost uh, like friends to you. And I really felt like uh, I had a friendship with Lady Mary Montague, uh, <laughs> who lived, who lived, you know, what, 200 and almost 300 years, uh, 300 years ago. Yeah. Um, and uh, she was, she was wonderful companion because she was bright. She was witty. She was uh, a writer. Uh, she enjoyed writing poetry. Uh, some of her poetry was so scurrilous and so biting that she had to publish it anonymously. Um, 
She was extremely energetic, loved reading everything she could get her hands on and was seemed fearless. She was a, she was a fearless woman. Um, and so I, I, the more I learned about her, the more important her work became. She um, was brought up as a member of the English nobility and married uh, a man who would become ambassador to the Ottoman Empire, what we call Turkey today, uh, back in the early part of the 18th century. And she um, insisted when her husband was named ambassador to Constantinople, today's uh, Istanbul, Istanbul, she insisted on she yeah, she insisted on joining him. Uh, in Istanbul, which was unusual uh, to have, a, you know, normally the wife of a diplomat um, on a dangerous assignment to a very distant part of the world at that time, uh, the wife would generally stay back in London and entertain people while her husband was away. Lady Mary insisted on going with her husband to Istanbul, <laughs> um, and she br- and she brought her, her young son with her. They had a, a toddler. Um, that she took with her to uh, this posting, traveled halfway around the world, learned enormous amounts about other cultures while she was there, was curious about everything, interested in everything. They get to Istanbul. He sets up as the ambassador, and she fills her time by um, learning about women's lives in a Muslim nation, uh, you know, in an Islamic nation. And she becomes fascinated with the uh, ways in which women in that society exerted power for themselves, even even though they didn't really have power. You know, the European view of women in, in Turkey at that time was that they were kept in harems, you know, they were shut away in palaces, they were guarded by eunuchs, they were treated like slaves. And they had no power whatsoever. What Lady Mary found was that these women were highly cultured, often highly educated, um, very sharing, very open. And she had a wonderful time learning about their lives. And she relayed some of the first impressions that European women had of this of this mysterious life in the 1710s, uh, 1720s. She, uh, her letters became famous for their descriptions of life in uh, this Islamic world. In any case, at the same time, she noticed in the baths of these uh, women that she was um, visiting with, uh, they would, you know, it was common in that society for them to bathe together. She noticed that while in Europe at that time, it was very common for women to have their complexion marred uh, with pockmarks from smallpox. Uh, Smallpox infections uh, would leave pits in the skin as a result. Mm -hmm. And almost every woman in Britain was marked because almost everyone Mm -hmm. in Britain got smallpox. Smallpox was a horrible killer disease of the uh, 16th, 17th, 18th century. Killed more people than the Black Plague. once it got into your bloodstream, there was about a, a one in four chance that it would kill you. If you survived, you survived with these with these disfiguring um, scars on your skin. Lady Mary was accustomed to everyone having these scars. They were so common that they were often uh, it became a fashion to cover them up with bits of fabric. Uh, women in the upper classes 
in Europe would cut out little stars or crosses or um, create false beauty marks to cover up the pits in their skin. She expected the same thing to happen in, uh, you know, to be the case in Turkey, but she was sharing the uh, private lives and the um, baths of these women in, in uh, Constantinople at that time. And their skin was flawless over and over Mm. and over. It didn't look like almost, almost no one was disfigured. Lady Mary's curiosity was, was piqued by this. And so she asked them, how it came to be that they had no smallpox. And they told her a story. It was a tradition in their society to have an old woman come around. When children were young, they would have a party and and the old woman would bring a walnut shell with a little bit of uh, a pox from a mild case. They would find a mild case of smallpox in uh, the city somewhere. These old women would go and scrape a little bit off of the uh, lesions of the smallpox patient in mild cases. And they would put these scrapings in a little walnut shell. This sounds gross, but it was actually <laughs> it was actually brilliant medicine because they knew in this society that if you scraped a little bit of these lesions, you know, this dried scabs or the matter from a smallpox patient, if you scratched a little bit of it into the skin of a child, you could cause a very mild smallpox infection, a non-dangerous infection, as opposed Mm -hmm. to a wild infection. You know, if there's an epidemic, it's a wild infection, and it would kill, as I mentioned, a quarter of the people who got the disease. In Istanbul, in the Ottoman Empire, these women were creating a mild infection by scratching a little bit of a mild case into the skin of a child, then the children would be kept in isolation for a week or two until they had a mild case of smallpox. And the case would pass, usually without scarring, usually without any disfiguring pits or dangerous uh, run of the disease. The children would survive, their skin would be flawless, and once that was done, they would never get smallpox again. There was no danger of reinfection. No one knew why that was the case. The science wasn't there. The people in the Ottoman Empire just did it because it worked. Lady Mary was allowed to observe this. She, she was brought into the women's world where these practices were observed. <clears throat> and she was given the chance to watch this operation happen. And she was blown away. I, you know, that's a modern term, but she was struck by how effective this was, how um, it could save children the risk of being infected by this horrible disease. She wanted that for her son, uh, her young son. She wanted him to be inoculated, um, the term we now use for what the old women were doing in the Ottoman Empire. Um, an inoculation is a, a sort of controlled infection with a mild case of a dangerous disease in order to prevent its recurrence. She got it done for her son. He was the first European, uh, certainly the first British child to ever have an inoculation done. And he survived and he was fine. Lady Mary herself uh, and her husband were called back to England and she began 
proselytizing. She began um, talking up this process in the medical circles in Britain. And, and I tell this story of how the, the learned physicians of the time tried to shut her down. Um, and uh, there was a huge public argument. She finally had to go to the royal family in England at that time, George the Second, uh, I think. Um, she had to go to the royal family and get their dispensation to try this on uh, more, more and more people. And gradually, the the practice caught on. She saved hundreds of thousands of lives. Her work was enormously important in preventing. Um, infection with smallpox, it led eventually to the eradication of smallpox. Now, this uh, much longer version of the story in the book, but the lesson for me was that at the same time, you know, that she was doing her work and trying to get the people in England to use this technique that was so uh, life-sparing at the same time, an anti-inoculation reaction set in. In England, this is in the 1720s, 1730s, 1740s, the same sorts of arguments that anti-vaccination people give now were, were given 300 years ago. Uh, it's remarkable mm. to me, remarkable to me that um, the anti-inoculation, anti-vaccination movement started just as soon as there was the chance, uh, it was it you know it takes various guises at various times, but it's not it, it, historically it's not unusual that there is so much anti-vaccination work going on now. So much uh, in I don't know if enthusiasm is the right word, but so much commitment to an anti-vaccination uh, agenda. There, uh, it, because these feelings have been around for a very long time, uh, under under different headings for different reasons, you know, using different images and symbols, but still, it's you know, as soon as the drug or the medicine came in, the anti-medicine forces uh, came out at the same time. It's almost as if the two are opposite sides of the same coin. You you know, you got to mm. you you don't get one without the other. But it goes back to what you were saying about luck as well. I mean, how lucky that Lady Mary's husband was assigned to Constantinople and that she was able to uh, embark uh, on experiencing these these women's private lives and to witness this. I mean, I am scared to take my toddler son to the grocery store and she's bringing him to the Ottoman Empire and and essentially, you know, ushering in this period of inoculation. It's a really extraordinary, uh, really extraordinary uh, serendipitous um, effect. So, yeah, and yeah, and and it required it required a very special kind of person, and that again gets back to the question of personality, individual personality, and history. It's so easy to look at the history of science as sort of ideas moving through time. I think just as important are personalities moving through time. And had she not absolutely. had the personality, had she not had the personality that she had, it is likely that. Although I believe the same developments would have taken place, they might have taken place decades later, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, so the ideas are vital, but you know, her personality drove the process and moved it faster than it would have otherwise. Absolutely. 
So, so in the beginning of the book, you cover a variety of substances. You cover opium and then the development of heroin in the 19th century. Uh, you cover knockout drops, like you said, inoculations, sulfa drugs, uh, antipsychotics. Uh, but then you get to this brief interlude in your book, uh, which you called the Golden Age. There was a period that existed from about the 1930s to the 1960s. And you wrote that it marked a period of great change in drug development. Uh, what was the golden age? And how did it change drug development and the drugs we take? Well, uh, that period it, that I call the golden age, uh, and I'm not the only drug historian who calls it that, um, it kind of it existed and, and happened because by the 1930s, when it started in the 1940s, it really heated up. Um, we sort of had learned enough about how the human body works as, as uh, physicians, as scientists, as researchers um, had learned more and more about the inner workings of the body, the, the ways in which proteins um, exert their power, the ways in which the immune system works, uh, how hormones work, what, what hormones are. Um, you sort of got to this level of fine-tuning medicine uh, to where people were looking at individual classes of molecules instead of at, you know, the old system of stuff, which, uh, you know, early on physicians were thinking about the four humors and balancing the four humors, and they were bleeding people to balance the four humors. Uh, that kind of early theorizing had gone by the wayside. By the 1930s, we had all of these scientific tools that allowed us to pick apart the workings of the body in finer and finer detail. Once we knew those players in the human body, we were able to develop drugs that could affect more and more specific targets in the body. So that's one part of it was just how much we knew mm -hmm. about the body. One part of it was how organic chemistry and the ability to manipulate molecules in the laboratory had advanced. That too uh, played an important role because most drugs were made by organic chemists who were developing and making new drugs while we had better and better ways to make new drugs. At the same time, uh, you know, soon after the 1930s, uh, World War II hit. World War II pumped a lot of money into medical research for you know, things like antibiotics and wound treatment and stuff. So there was an injection of money that played a role. And then after the war, mm -hmm. there was an enormous baby boom. And, you know, baby boomers started arriving. And most families in the developed countries, you know, in the United States and Western Europe, uh, started putting a lot of effort into making sure their children were healthy. And so there was an enormous uh, kind of social pull uh, as well. So all of these factors played a role in creating a, an atmosphere for drug development that was well-funded, that was well-supplied with basic facts about the body, and that had the tools that it needed in terms of chemistry and uh, so forth, had the tools that it needed to make new drugs. And when they did make these new drugs, there was an enormous market for it, because after World War II, the general you know, income level in the world went shot up. And there was a boom in the 1950s, 1960s, where people had money to spend on pharmaceuticals. Um, all of that combined to make it like a great time to have a drug company. A lot of big drug companies started mm -hmm. up during that golden era. 
They developed these methods of laboratory research that were very effective. They, you know, honed their market. They found their marketing techniques and money rolled in. And that's why it was the golden age. Wow. One of the other things you mentioned about the golden age is that it changed drug development because, as you put it, the low-hanging fruit uh, had already been picked. And so the new drugs that were being developed emphasized more the quality rather than the quantity of life. And I thought that was such an interesting shift in drug development. Uh, there There was an emphasis on creating drugs that people would take for a long time. And it would treat maybe one of those things that we were talking about before for the, the, the issues of the graying and the aging of America, rather than curing things like smallpox or uh, things that we might take antibiotics for. So some of these drugs that were developed included the birth control pill, Viagra, uh, some of the other substances that you described. Can you talk a little bit about these drugs that were developed to emphasize the quality rather than the quantity of life in that post-Golden Age moment? Sure. Um, I I think that's a very important trend. uh, And I think that it really marks a lot of the new drugs that are uh, in development now and are just hitting the market now. Um, And I think an easy way to look at that um, evolution of the drug uh, industry is to look at antibiotics again. You know, we uh, I'm a baby boomer. I was born in the 50s. And when I was a kid, if you had an ear infection or a sore throat that went on too long or, uh, you know, you cut your knee or anything like that, you'd get an antibiotic. It's just like, you know, doctors were handing out antibiotics for everything. They were wonder drugs and they were big sellers and they cured things. And that was the problem with antibiotics. The problem with antibiotics was they cured things. This is how the business model works. It's, it's like, uh, antibiotics are terrific, but you take an antibiotic for a couple of weeks and then you're done with it right? because it cures things, which is great for the patient, but it's bad for the drug company because <laughs> the drug company only gets to sell a couple of weeks worth of antibiotics and then the patient's done until next time, right? So antibiotics don't make a lot of money for drug companies. And in fact, that's why Despite the crying need for new antibiotics, there's very little research going on in terms of new antibiotic development Mm. because there's not a lot of money to be made. Mm. Instead, the money is made by getting patients on drugs that they will take for the rest of their life. Mm. You don't want them to take it for a couple of weeks and stop. You want them to take it for the next couple of decades Mm. and preferably forever uh, if you can do it. So Drug companies are very smart about uh, looking for markets where people are likely to take a drug that will do them some good. There's no doubt it will do them some good. It will save some lives. But the likelihood is that the person taking the drug will take it forever because the drug is used not to cure an underlying disease, but rather to treat the symptoms of a chronic condition. And some of the chronic conditions, uh, you know, a chief among the chronic conditions that humans have is growing old. If you want to look at growing old as a disease, uh, (laughs) which is that is debatable itself. That's that's controversial. But, you know, as people get older, especially baby boomers get older, you've got this huge demographic bulge going through society of uh, of these 
graying people. They're now, you know, the biggest demographic group in history is hitting old age. And Mm -hmm. there's a bunch of chronic diseases that happen with old age and arthritis and heart disease, you know, a sort of high cholesterol, heart disease kind of stuff and diabetes and, and a lot of conditions that can be controlled, but are very difficult to cure entirely. So, the big money and and the big drugs are now going uh, toward this area of chronic disease symptom control, mm-hmm. and you don't really ever cure the underlying problem, but you but you create a drug that will keep people comfortable for a very long time. That's one part of it. So uh, treating chronic diseases. The other part of it is what you alluded to. They're called uh, lifestyle drugs. You know, they're drugs that don't really cure a condition, but are used to make people's lives more bearable or happier mm. or better, better tolerated. One group of them would be like uh, for men would be um, Viagra, or those those kind of enhancement drugs that mm-hmm. aren't really for a disease necessarily at all. There's a very small number of men who have true erectile dysfunction. Um, that can be helped with drugs like Viagra, but most Viagra is not sold to those guys. Most Viagra is mm-hmm. going to guys who you know want something to take on the Saturday afternoon, so they'll have like, a fun weekend. And and so it doesn't really. It's a drug that doesn't really cure anything, it, but it's a lifestyle drug. It it makes your life more fun. It makes your life more. Uh, I guess. It sort of takes care of something that's not really a life-threatening disease. Right. So you have a lot of a huge number of drugs now that are for things like heartburn and um, sort of small-scale issues, minor tranquilizers. I mentioned Xanax earlier. Things that uh, people will take, not necessarily because they have a serious disease, but because they want to avoid a serious disease or they want to improve the quality of their life. These are drugs that are likely to be taken for a long period of time, huge money to be made. I spend a chapter of the book on statins. I found statins to be fascinating because they're cholesterol controlling drugs. Biggest, the biggest drug in the world uh, over the past decade was Lipitor, which is a statin. Lipitor sold enormous amounts, uh, you know, amounts that in income that rival the sort of the gross domestic product of a small country. Lipitor made money hand over fist. Well, what it does is it lowers cholesterol levels, right? It turns out there's a real question over just how much that means for heart disease. Hmm. But the important thing for drug companies is not that they're curing a disease in this case. It is more that once you start taking Lipitor or another statin, you're likely to keep taking it for the rest of your life. And those are the patients that they want. So anyway, there's a, yes, I I think the shift (laughs) from life-saving disease curing treatments, which were the low-hanging fruit I talked about, very important, this heroic age of people like Lady Mary and other people who stopped um, life-threatening diseases, that has shifted now. And now we have very, very clever marketing for any number of drugs that are likely to be taken for a very long time. Which is remarkable. And and building on this idea, you open your introduction by saying that you wanted to write a book about drugs because they were interesting to you, uh, not because you had any kind of axe to grind. 
But you end the book by saying that maybe you do have an axe to grind after all. Um, You write that you want to, quote, rescue the development of drugs, some of the most powerful, most beneficial medical tools ever developed from the control of for-profit corporations. As long as big pharma puts money over health, they are unworthy of being the sole developers of new drugs. So I have two questions about that. And the first is, was it through the process of writing this book that you came to this conclusion? And the second is, do you think this is possible? Can we rescue drug development from the profit motive that has guided it for so long, or are we screwed? <laughs> well, those are excellent questions. And uh, I, the first question is, yes, I came to the conclusion through the writing of the book. You know, writers learn as they as they create a book. Um, as you probably know, as an author yourself, you come at it a different place at the end of the process than when you went in. I went into this process without an axe to grind. I really respect drug development and the whole pharma industry for giving us so many wonderful, life-saving, life-changing remedies. And I don't really fault them for their business model. They are wonderful at doing what they do, which is making money. But that's how I came into the book. Where I came out of the book was looking at the profit motive as a guiding force rather then uh, their skill at finding new drugs, which is exceptional, their skill at marketing new drugs, which is phenomenal, genius-level marketers in the drug industry. Um, I don't fault them for that. What I fault them for is a business model that places profit above health. And mm. it's, it's so hard to distinguish those in the pharmaceutical industry that I hesitate to even make that statement. But Uh, I do believe that there are stories to be told and there are methods to be explored that can make the benefits of pharmaceuticals available to people without the associated profiteering that sometimes distorts the science that is associated with pharmaceutical development. That's a very careful way of saying that, uh, (laughs) that, in fact, the, the, I believe that the profit motive skews and sophisticates, uh, and I'm using sophisticate in the sense of uh, sort of the root of the word, which is poisoning. Um, <laughs> the, it skews and sophisticates the process of finding, of creating better health for people. The goal is to create better health, but the goal of many drug companies on an equal level or perhaps even greater level is to make money. I think those two things could be separated. I don't think that it's absolutely necessary to profiteer in order to advance health. And there are public models that might work. What those public models might be is a subject for much deeper sort of public discussion and debate than I'm capable of. A lot of people argue that you need big pharma to find new drugs because it's so expensive. I think that's a debatable point. That's something we should all be thinking about. Well, Tom, this has been an extraordinary conversation, and I really hope that you do continue to pursue this topic quite a bit. Uh, Before we let you go, though, I'd love to know what your next project will be. What are you planning on working on next? I am currently finishing a book. I'm, I'm in the process of writing a book about something completely different. I have a restless uh, imagination, I guess. I have trouble sticking to one field. Uh, so what I'm doing now is a story of a, a time in the 1920s when Henry Ford and Thomas Edison teamed up to build a 75-mile-long city and employ a million workers 
along the Tennessee River in northern Alabama. They were going to create a techno-utopia with renewable energy and a new kind of currency and change the history of America. Never happened, but they went a long way down the road to make it happen, and I'm telling that story. Wow, that sounds amazing. I, uh, If you work drugs in there, somehow we can get you on this podcast, so... Hopefully it'll work out. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see what happens. (laughs) Excellent. Well, it all sounds awesome. Um, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. This has been an an absolutely awesome conversation. Thank you so much. Okay, Emily, my pleasure. Uh, Nice to talk to your listeners.